to episode 12 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, guys. On today's show, we have a guest with us, uh, Jason Cohen, who's founder of SmartBear Software, the company that, that makes Code Collaborator. Um, Jason's also mentor at Capital Factory and blogger at asmartbear.com. Hi, Jason. Hey, it's nice to be here. So, uh, uh, Jason, uh, we... Um... We came across you initially by, I think, viewing some of your posts on Hacker News, which seems like they, they pop up about once every week or two. And uh, you've talked about a lot of interesting things in terms of how you built a smart bear um, or smart bear software and how you took it from being a, like a one-man startup without any debt and no VC to being a very profitable multi-million dollar company. And you talk, about, you talk about a lot of interesting things in the whole web startup space or even or just software startup space. So um, I, Justin and I are just very interested in asking you a lot about you know, your success and things that you've learned and things that you are learning. So um, I guess the first thing I'd like to ask is if you could just give us a little background on yourself and how you got started. Sure. Well, uh, I'm a startup kind of guy. SmartPair is actually my third startup. One was funded with VC money, and uh, Smart Bear and the one I did before it, IT Watchdogs, was not funded, or that is, it was bootstrapped. Um, so, you know, this is a pattern, I guess. And I think that's common with entrepreneurs in general. Usually don't do just one, um, regardless of whether they worked or not. Um, in fact, I think that's probably one of the attributes of an entrepreneur generally that you you don't give up even if you even if an entire venture fails you still go, get up and do something else and it's that kind of perseverance i think that's one of the major qualities of people who end up being successful anyway um so i got into smart bear because uh, a mentor of mine uh, jerry cullen who has a great book on sales um made me he he basically said you need to not get a real job and you need to do smart bear because this is a good idea and okay, I argued wait, with no. him and he so won. You, you said his last name was <laughs> Cohen. Was he related to you? C Cullen. 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 C -U okay. Yeah, C-U-L-L-E-N. And so you have um, this mentor, but how did you get this mentor? I mean, you have this guy telling you what to do and giving you advice. How did that well, happen? Yeah, actually, so that's a big deal, right? Because mentors can, be, can make all the difference. In the VC-funded company, in the bubble, yay, bubble, uh, we hired Jerry as our CEO. And that's how I got to know him. And then at IT Watchdogs, that was his company. And I came on and did the whole work for nothing for years. And um, eventually we ran that guy up um, uh, to over a million dollars in revenue and sold that company. And so so I've been, I worked with him twice. And that's, that's also how he was a mentor because we worked together. Okay. okay. Um, so go on. But, I'll start with the interruption. Go ahead. Yeah. So I started with a product called Code Historian, which was um, – an esoteric product that did data mining for version control systems. And the idea was version control systems tends to be used just to coordinate different people and really nothing else. There was no other use of that data. And I felt like there was a lot of use in there, like uh, which files do we change a lot or which files haven't we changed recently and we're about to. So that's kind of scary and stuff like that. Visualization reports, churn. And you'd think that was kind of a good idea, but <clears throat> that had nothing to do with why SmartBear was successful because what happened was people started using this tool and I'd get these weird feature requests like they'd say, hey, uh, these file diffs that I'm looking at, you know, before, after kind of diffs, can I email them to somebody? And I thought, well, no, but I guess maybe I could add that. And then, then they'd say things like, 
Well, uh, could I write on them and give and then send it to somebody? I was thinking, what are you guys doing? This is this is bizarre. This is data mining for version control. Don't you understand? It's on the front page of my homepage. Don't you get it? No, this, your... this is with uh, this was with a, a smart bear software that you started yeah. this data mining. Yeah, right. So they were using they were abusing the software for code review, for doing peer code review, like people looking at each other's work and critiquing, finding bugs, teaching new people where the bones are buried, that kind of stuff. And this, so this wasn't my idea. This was them doing it and sort of dragging me into it. So I listened and I did it, and I didn't quite understand that it was that interesting. But it turned out that there weren't any tools to do code review. And that, of course, either means it's a really crappy idea, so that's why no one's doing it, or it is a good idea and the market doesn't exist yet and you can create it. And, of course, you never know which of those is the truth. But since everyone was dragging me in and since it was just me and – you know, I had this vision of data mining, but what the heck, let's just see where it goes. And it ended up being a, a new market that didn't exist that was really fertile. And because we were the only ones doing it, we were able to get a lot of customers. Um, and eventually I wrote this book called Lightweight or Best Kept Secrets of Peer Code Review. It's a little red book, which you can get for free. You can get a paperback book delivered to you for free from our website. That's a whole other story, actually, that marketing campaign. Anyway, we've right. given away 35,000 of those puppies, which is more than almost any other uh, – more, more than tech books usually do, certainly more than other books on code review. Well, so, how much does that cost you? I mean, right, I mean even just, just printing and, and shipping, I mean that – Yeah, that's a good question. It's you a know, loss leader. I'm guessing it's a loss leader, but for what? But for the code collaborator software, is that how it works? Well, you know, that's – you know, this is a whole interesting subject of conversation. So let me just give you the thumbnail. <laughs> Um, it, of course, when you're only doing a few at a time, it's it's very expensive, maybe ten, fifteen dollars each. But since we shoot out a thousand a month, believe it or not, um, the, in in the bulk that we're talking about, we've gotten it down to five dollars total. I'm talking about envelope postage, uh, printing of the books, the whole sucker's five bucks. Now you right. still might say, yeah, but still five bucks for you know for what uh, you know a, a marketing a piece of marketing material that shows up at someone's desk. That still sounds like a lot. I mean, a postcard is whatever it is, 60 cents. Um, and it's absolutely worth it. And it, I, I actually disagree that it's a lost leader in this sense. Because the book is not a brochure, okay, it's, it actually does just present a lot of data about code review. There's stories. There's questions you should ask of yourself. There's how to build checklists. Um, there's, uh, there's articles about the social effects, like there's all kinds of stuff about code review in there that has nothing to do with the tool. And then in the very last chapter is a brochure, but this is like 10 pages out of 164 pages, so it's not a brochure. So what happens is, uh, number one, it, it, people who are curious read it and often get really excited about code review, and that, of course, indirectly helps us. Number two, you don't throw out a book. You just don't put books in the trash. Even if you're not interested, they go on the shelf. So this is a piece of material that sticks, and unlike any brochure or pamphlet or you know, certainly email or white paper or any of that usual kind of garbage that people like to send out, it sticks, and people, other people pick it up. Next, it gives us credibility. Um, I've been in a meeting where a customer has held up, a, held up the book in his hand and said to his boss, yeah, we're going with the Smart Bear guys because um, they're the ones that wrote the book, and Jason answers the, answers the phone when we call and have questions. Yeah, I mean, so, you're literally the guy who wrote the book on the subject, right? Yeah, like the cliche, right? And, yeah, and so that's great. And that's, I mean, again, like 
the guy that wrote the brochure is sitting right here, right? Like it doesn't have the same <laughs> effect at all, right? right? So that's huge. And then there's another hidden benefit. I mean, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's not. It's not uh, evil or anything. But there's another benefit here that's not obvious. When you order the book, we ask you, "How did you hear about us?" And a lot of people ask, "How do you hear about us?" Right? But usually, people don't fill that in or they don't care. But because people are getting something of value, of true value, not just like you can see this PDF and God knows what's in it. Because it has something of value, people fill that field out and they tell the truth. And the reason we know they tell the truth is when you come to our website, we give you a cookie that holds the initial page you came from, like the initial referring link. And so later when you fill out the form, we repeat that in the form so we can see later on uh, where you came in. Okay, that's, that's nothing spectacular, right? A lot of people do that. But what that means is when people fill in the, this field, we can compare that with the cookie and see, at least in the case of coming in through, you know, whatever, a blog or some kind of online ad, we can see if people tell the truth or remember. And they do. And so we extrapolate and say, well, when people say they heard about us in this magazine, at this conference, because of this presentation, and so on, things that are generally hard to track, we assume that, that again, it's the truth. And people fill out that form over 90% of the time. And it's not a required field. You can leave it blank or you can put X's in there or whatever. And 90% of the time... But you can see what's it. working for you. Aha. Uh-huh. And so the ability to know what of our marketing efforts are working, including the ones that are generally really um, difficult to measure, like trade shows, like magazine ads, you know, like that sort of stuff, we know. In fact, I can... Well... <laughs> The story I used to tell is about Dr. Dobbs, but sadly, Dr. Dobbs no longer exists. But when Dr. Dobbs did exist, I could tell you the day Dr. a new issue of Dobbs hit the people's desks because we would get a blip in book orders from a Dr. Dobbs ad. It was right. that precise. It was like almost like having AdWords-style measurement for a magazine ad. So this is just a long way of saying that kind of information, knowing where to spend our money uh, – is so invaluable that it's cl- it definitely drowns out the five dollar for a book. I'll ask a just for this. Um, one one thing that I think I've been thinking to myself is that deals like this, and when I say loss leader, I don't mean that in a bad sense. I just mean it in the sense that you're paying money up front, up front, you know, with the hope of generating PR and um, you know driving sales somehow. <laughs> but um, to, to, just to, just to ask my question, which is. Another benefit that you didn't mention there that I think that that this type of um, promotion sort of brings into the brings into the fore is basically goodwill and and in that people feel goodwill towards you and they're more inclined to sort of think about you as as a person to spend money with. Uh, precisely, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think if you just genuine genuinely help someone, and in our case that may mean disseminating information. Um, you know, a good example of that, the, uh, checklists are a pet peeve of mine. I have, you know, my own little theory of how you should build a checklist or at least things you shouldn't do that are wastes of time. And so there's some stuff about that in the book. There are some articles on our website that go into more detail and our product does not support checklists, right? So like if you believe all this and think it's a great idea, you, you can't buy our software and then have it. <laughs> so clearly this is not just self-serving. It's not just to sell some software, right? Like clearly we're just trying to help on that. And when you do that, people know, right? They can tell that there's not an ulterior motive. Or even if they know you sell a product, they can still see 
you're not just leading them down some path to a product. They can tell you really are trying to inform them. And you're right that there's goodwill and, um, yeah, you want to, there's sort of, I mean, the, the psychological word is reciprocity, right? You feel yeah. like you want to give something back. And that's also yeah. a sales term. And I kind of don't like it when it's used um, in sort of a mean-spirited way. Like, I'm intentionally giving you this because I expect to get the sale. Like, if that's your attitude, that's not quite the right attitude. But yeah. if it's this kind of passive way, I think it's valid. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing about karma. You know, if you go out and, and you're really just helping people because you're expecting you know, everyone to help you back, that's really your goal, then, you know, you're right. It's just more of a state of mind, uh, sort of a, uh, an approach. But if you're like, hey, you know, I just like helping people. In the end, I don't know if it'll come back to me or not, but in my experience, it has. So it's, that's just an added benefit in a way. Yeah, it, it definitely does. I mean, Seth Godin is maybe the best example of that because here's a guy who doesn't charge by the hour. He's not a consultant. All of his blogging, I mean, surely he makes money off of books and stuff, but the whole blog and the talks he gives, he doesn't make a profit off of that, right? It's just because if he does this all the time, uh, people will buy his books, they'll ask him to speak, they'll go to you know, his websites and, and at least check them out. And of course, it's worked really well for him. Right. It's not just well, about money, to... is it? It's also about enjoying your life, you know? And one thing that makes people feel good is to help people. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the greatest joys in life is knowing that you've helped other people. I mean, the times of my life when I felt like I've gone out of my way and really made a difference in people's lives, it's that it actually, for years, it, it makes you feel good. Like every time you think about that person, it's like, you know, it's just this ongoing goodwill uh, or, or good feeling about what, what you were able to, how you're able to help somebody. Even if they're not necessarily constantly saying, hey, remember that time you helped me? That was great. You know you helped them, right? And you, and you feel good about it. And it's, it's just, right, it makes life great. Well, I have to say, you know, this is a really, I mean, I, I'm, this is a really good idea. I, you know, it's, I'm sure it's not actually new. In fact, now that I think about it, I can, I can, I can think of uh, software that I've used or bought that where they actually gave a book away or, or sold a book or something, and, and, I, and I can see how that's been a, a method to help uh, generate sales and credibility and stuff. But I haven't seen it talk so much about in sort of this whole um, hacker news world of small startups and web startups you don't really see people doing the book thing ebook thing other than maybe 37 signals and they're actually selling it they're actually trying to make money from it um or they do make money from it i think i think jason freed has actually talked about how he's made they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars or more off of um you know one or both of their books yeah they have but i, I would caution you on that one because um they have a huge following and i'm, I'm not saying no one else can can do that but you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of a book requires a massive following, and that's a great vision. But you don't want to hang your success or have your de your success dependent on having a big following. You want right. to be able to be, for example, profitable and growing even with a tiny following. And if you're and if you get a big following, then even better, right? So they they didn't write that book initially to make money. Although you're right, they they have at this point made money, and of course they're working on another book now, um, which also was to make money. Um, but you're right. It, usually you don't talk about it in the small business or, you know, right, the, the micro business um, area. And part of that is because a physical book does cost real money as opposed to, I don't know, things online like ebooks that don't cost money. But see, that's part of why it works is that it is something of value. And it we are inundated with ebooks and white papers and all this online stuff. And there is something about a tangible object 
that imbues it with more value. And I think that's exactly why it works better. Okay, we're talking about this, but one thing is, uh, we sort of stumbled on this. Is this the secret of your success, or is, does this play like a 10% role in the secret of your success, or what, what, you know, how, how does it fit in in that sense? We were, already, we were already doing millions of dollars in revenue when the book first came out. So I, I would not say that this is the secret key that, <laughs> that, that made it. But I, I will also say, though, that it was, there was no doubt that it has had, had a huge effect um, since whatever it was, 2006, I think, when it came out, because it, uh, because like like I said, you know, I've seen people actually using it, and in demos, for example, it's very common for someone to say, "Well, I got the book, and that's why you're in the, that's why we're doing this demo." So you know, we we've we know from you know direct evidence that um, it leads to uh, people to be interested, leads to sales eventually. So you know, is it is it the secret? weapon no and of course there isn't one right there's no one secret weapon but uh but i think maybe the attitude is a good secret weapon the attitude uh, like you said of, of giving of helping of providing information of providing assistance um let's just say for free whatever that means um and then hopefully getting something in return i think that attitude is maybe a winning attitude and was that attitude part of you growing the company from nothing to the, the first the first million uh, revenue as it were? Um, well, not consciously. In other words, I didn't scribble in lipstick on my mirror in the morning. You know, <laughs> we'll have an attitude of giving for nothing and, and expecting return. You know, it wasn't like that. Um, in retrospect, yeah, I mean, things like following whatever the customer is saying, paying attention and then doing it. I mean, that's that's a way of of. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, I guess. But uh, well, being directly available on the phone is certainly well, yeah. you know falls into that. You know, That's being true. being uh, being a good um, support support company, and basically following through, um, even though you're not being paid any more money, following through with those support calls, making sure you're fixing bugs, all that stuff is the same spirit. Okay, well, I, I have a, a question about the, the actual the book writing, though, right? Okay, so what gave you the idea to actually write a book, and 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 also what made you think that you could do it successfully? I mean, writing a book is different than writing software you know i mean it, it, it uh, you know when you oftentimes you hear authors talk about writing a book they say oh, it was so much harder much harder than i thought it was going to be and it took so much more work and so much more time and all these sorts of stuff i mean i'd like to hear a little bit about that process or what you know how what made you think of it and how you got started and and, and sure. all that actually it's a good story about how it came to be because be, because there are other ideas besides the book that uh, are less work but still have more impact than just a PDF and and I can t and, and that's part of the story um, also it's always interesting to see how these ideas come about because the way you get the next idea isn't a stroke of genius right it's it, it's a process or it's an it's a series of events so it's it's useful to see like what mindset do you use to get to these ideas because I didn't invent this idea so here's the story there's a comp there's a consulting company out of Ottawa although they they now have offices in America uh, called Macadamian like the nut Macadamian and even before the advent of social media and and everyone should have a blog and all the stuff we're talking about they've always had this attitude and they have this great newsletter and they they had articles posted on their website about just how to write code well and how to work teams and how to use version control and that kind of stuff and they got a lot of goodwill and traction especially in the Ottawa um area um because you know the 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 big um you know places like like uh, um um 
Well, anyway, in in Canada generally, being being Canadian, but but also here, just because they were disseminating information. But in particular, I went and visited them, and they had this this spiral bound book that was essentially why you should hire them. And again, you know, you're used to getting these one page glossy brochures, and you know, who cares? It's that they're kind of the same old stuff, and eh. But this thing was interesting because it was a booklet. It wasn't just a one page brochure, and it was mostly these articles about how to write code well. And so it taught me something about writing code which I appreciated, but at the same time, they were proving indirectly we really care about the process of writing software, so much so that we even write about it and talk about it and want to help you even if you don't hire us. We want to share with you these ideas we have. So you see, if you imagine a brochure that just says we care about software process, you don't believe it. Like, so what? Everyone says that, right? But basically, right. They're, they're showing. They're not telling. Yeah, exactly, exactly what I was going to say. Show, don't tell, right? Show, don't tell. And then, and then put it in this nice spiral notebook that I can take with me. And I had this thought that uh, – because I brought it back uh, with me to the office, and I was like, this is really nice. And I didn't – I never, ever threw it away, sort of like I was just saying with the book because I think the book has even more of that um, sort of – uh, attribute than than the spiral bound thing was, but the spiral bound thing was still, again, like you could just toss it, but it's kind of nice, right? So maybe you don't. And you feel kind of guilty throwing it away. Yeah, yeah. And so it kind of struck me like that. That's interesting. This has staying power. It's show don't tell. It's helping me. Like this is a really great piece of marketing material. I thought. So, <clears throat> so that's the step one of the story. Um, and yes, we made our own spiral notebook, by the way, which. Uh, um, Costs more than the book to make, believe it or not, with the color page and stuff. And it is it is really handy. And I'd recommend that kind of thing, especially for if you do an in-person visit and you want to leave behind, or you do something with the press or with uh, editors and you want something really nice to leave behind that again will kind of be more bulky and and attention grabbing than a than that. that. That did work well for us. But that's step one of the story. So the next step is this was before this was a, uh, the company I did before Smart Bear. So this is now at IT Watchdogs. And by the way, we did server room climate monitoring. So a little box that told you if it got too hot, that sort of thing. Embedded software. Really fun little company. And um, again, Jerry Cullen, my mentor, he, it was his company. He, he started it. And I said – we were talking about how to disseminate information. And I said, look at this macadamia thing. It's awesome. And I showed him the book, booklet. And Jerry says, what if we did that? But you know, nowadays – Self-publishing is actually pretty cheap. What if we did that, but we actually made a bound book? I thought, wow, that would be cool. How much does that cost? And we looked into it. And what, so we ended up making a book at IT Watchdogs. And the IT Watchdogs book was 20, maybe 30 pages at the front, which was sort of the pitch for why you care about things getting too hot in server rooms. So, you know, the disaster story about the air conditioner going out and – you lost all the machines and it cost so much money, you know, that sort of story. And then right. some more technical theory about it, some cool pictures, stuff like that. But the bulk of the book was a bro were brochures for each of the products and accessories that we made. So it was mostly a, just a brochure with a little bit of prose in the front, but it was bound like a real book as opposed to a normal brochure. And once again, it was, you know, give it away on the website because it was a brochure. So of course you're going to give it away on the website. And, that, again, smash success. People got it, and 
they thought it was really neat and they didn't mind it was mostly a brochure actually they still thought it was pretty cool so later on at smart bear um i took did that, uh, did that surprise you at all yes thinking, sure you're thinking hey i got this 20 page or 30 page bound brochure i mean no no the who, book was like 120 pages because it was almost oh, all brochure okay. of all these products we had spec sheets okay. and all kinds of stuff so you were shocked, you were a little surprised by that when you when you were creating it were you just thinking I don't know this is gonna work or what were you thinking you're just yeah like, you know I thought I thought you know the macadamia idea was cool binding it was kind of cool but if it's mostly a brochure then it's just a brochure right but but even doing that was a big deal now also this was hardware where there's a lot of accessories and things and diagrams so it was a pretty interesting you know graphical thing it wasn't like a bunch of screenshots that i think might be less interesting than that but but i don't know maybe it would be interesting to do that with software who knows because i was surprised about about this thing working but it really worked you know people would keep the book and order new things out of it and stuff like that so at smart bear uh you know now you know the end of the story i mean now you can connect the dots to the end of the story i thought okay the book was fantastic but i want to do the reverse i want to have just a few pages and this time in the back that's the brochure and I want to sort of earn it with a lot of really, you know, a lot of meat, a lot of content, um, right. because of all the reasons we already discussed, right? And so that's what we did. And again, we were really successful with that. So that's the progression of the book idea. A couple of a couple of points here. First of all, it, to our listeners, it sounds like we've invited Jason on to talk about the the, the book and the, the the process of making the book. This is this is a, this is the conversation that we've just stumbled into. So it wasn't the point of just um, promoting this book. However, since that we are here, I think it'd be a really good idea to tell people what the URL is so that you know, everyone <laughs> can get their hands on it. <laughs> sure. the The URL is codereviewbook.com. Oh, Codereviewbook. Okay. But you know. Yeah, uh, it's it actually right. It was it was not my intent either to uh, particularly <laughs> promote the book. Really, the idea is is the general takeaway idea is giving away something of true value gives you this reciprocity, and that could mean the Macadamian brochure. It could yep. mean a bound book. Um, it could mean take your blog and turn it into a book, and then give that away if you don't want to write a bunch of content. Um, one one of the ideas that that I initially had for the book, it didn't kind of pan out, um, but I I still think it's a brilliant idea. Is go get some customers that you have, people that you know, whatever, to contribute a chapter each, and have kind of like a collective. This is a book written by the employees and customers of my company, and. I mean, how cool is that to be more inclusive like that? And everyone everyone thinks it's cool to be published in a book, even now in the era of self-publishing. It's still really cool. So even if that means you have to kind of ghostwrite half of it and you know use interviews and things to build it out, still, like that's pretty compelling. And now it sounds a lot less like a sales pitch uh, just right off the bat, just because it's not just you writing it. So that could be a fun way to generate stuff. Um, and it, look, it doesn't have to be a book either, but um, I think this is the take-home message of like, uh, you know, producing information that people want. A blog is one way, of course, but it's also a way that everyone's doing. So uh, not to say that a blog is bad, but what else I mean, can you do that's not like everyone else that's maybe more sticky and, and has a little more value because it's tangible? Yeah, this, take, make, this makes a ton of sense. I, I, well, I, I, Justin, I have a couple of questions, but go ahead. Ask yours first. I just, 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 I just want to say taking, taking a step back – what what this can mean to um, independent software vendors is really that marketing is so key in your business. You can't just create software, put it up there, and expect it to take off. You have to get involved in lots of different marketing strategies. 
and um, I think that, uh, that that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, you, you see a lot. You've said a lot. I've seen a lot of uh, articles pop up on uh, recently about how you know, build it and they won't come, or build it and they won't care. Which is there's a certain amount of truth to that. Yeah. It just you have to somehow get it out there and get people talking about it and get people using it. And it's no mean feat. You know, you just can't sit there and write software and then have it on a public URL and just expect the world to come because they probably won't. I mean, because you have too many other people making noise and trying to get attention and trying to get people to experiment with their products or services or whatever. And so if they're doing that, you're just going to you know, be at a major disadvantage if you don't do something significant or clever. And this is yeah, very clever, yeah. I, I think. Um, so I have a couple uh, more specific questions about it, though, okay? So you're going to sit down and write this book. I mean, how hard was it to write the book, right? I mean, that's sort of a daunting thing. Uh, if you haven't written a book before, to sit down and say, okay, you know, line one, page one, line one. <laughs> oh, I'm going to write 100 and 200 or 300 pages about something. I mean, that's, you know. Well, let's see. Let me, let me see if I can, you know, c come up with a few uh, tips for that. Um, number one, if the book is, say, five inches by three and a half inches, um, 164 pages is not as much as you think. Um, I, I forget exactly what the ratio was of uh, my <clears> – <throat> Um, you know, like a normal typewritten page to this, but it's at least two to one. Um, so that it's not that bad. Plus, you want to have a lot of pictures and, and diagrams, which also takes up space and makes it more interesting. Because obviously, if people le leaf through the book and just see it's dense with text, that's not so great. Um, also, and in fact, you know what? It, it, you know, even if you don't get uh, th this book, you, there are sample chapters online. You could just look at the formatting of it there, and you can see that with the font we picked, with the uh, the the line spacing and stuff, you can see that. You can you can space it out pretty good. Um, so in the 164-page book, maybe it's, I don't know, 80 to 100 pages of, of normal prose, or maybe 80 with the pictures. Uh, so it's not, it's not as much, but 80 is still a lot. So you're, pull, so here's, you're pulling the same tricks we did in college, and we're trying to write that 10-page <laughs> paper, and we're screwing around with the columns and the font, trying to get an extra page and a half out of it? Well, you know, yeah, and also length is not the winner, right? The, the longest right. book is not the winner. In fact, brevity is better, and part of why you need it to be uh, more like 150 pages is that otherwise the spine isn't big enough to put anything on it. I mean, it's a, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird thing, but that's the right. truth. Um, you know, we did things also like I picked this bright red color for the cover so that it would stand out more. So you might consider something like that. But anyway, so back to the content. Um, so I, I would say several things. One, copy stuff. Um, pick books that t technical books that you like, and what is the format that they use? Do they have examples? Do they have callouts? How did they start the book out? Did they start out with, here's a, a story of uh, a terrible story that 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 um, exemplifies what I'm going to be talking about in this entire book? Uh, that's a common way to start, for example. Um, so, copy. Just look at it, take take a book that you enjoy or an author that you like, and read it for structure rather than reading it for content. What did they do? And just copy that. Just say like, okay, you know what? Uh, the way that they did the prologue is going to be the outline for my prologue. And now I have to fill it in. And, and of course, that's still non-trivial, but at least it gives you a structure that you know is a reasonable attention-grabbing structure. It's almost so like answering a, a list of questions, right? Like if you were going to outline, like these are the questions that were, were answered in the prologue or in the first chapter. And so now I just need to answer these questions almost on a paragraph-by-paragraph -paragraph basis. It could be. Um, but I, I would look at things like, do they start with, how do they start with a story? How do they arrest your, how do they grab your attention? 
Uh, usually it's a story, but you know, whatever. And then what do they do? Do they say, here's what I'm going to talk about? Do they give you a thesis? Like, here is in one paragraph my entire thesis, and the rest of the book is just going to back this up. Or do they not? Do they sort of give you a hint to to sort of whet your appetite, and they don't, they're not going to tell you yet because they want to whet your appetite? Or what? You know, what? Read it not for the specific content, but think, like, build an outline of their prologue or, or their first chapter or whatever. Um, right. Or their entire book. How did it flow? What kinds of things? You know, and build, you know, reverse engineer their outline, their structure, and then copy it. Or, you know, well, they, they, they talk about a lot. They, they, I've read about this when it comes to, like, say, writing screenplays um, for movies, that all the best movies have a very specific and shared format, like, uh, you know, uh, acts and plot points, and you have to hit certain beats. And if you don't, it just things just don't tend to work out. And it's very rare yeah. that you can break that structure and things work. Like Pulp Fiction was like an example of a movie that broke a lot of these rules that still worked. But in general, if you look at all these movies that aren't even remotely similar but were great movies, they all followed a very similar structure. And so what you're saying is, okay, look, there's a, there are structures that work, and, and what you want to do as a novice writer is don't start inventing new structures. Go after something that works. Yeah, but you, that's uh -huh. true. Uh, but on top of that, w one thing that's great about the world of blog uh, uh, that blogging has brought to technical books – is that you don't need a three-act play to define your book like you, like you might do in a novel. In other words, a book that has, let's say, 12 chapters, which are more or less 12 glorified extended blog posts where there is no segue from one to the next other than that they're on the same subject matter, is okay. It's something that people expect. They don't need, you know, development. They don't need, you know, a, a climactic thing close to the end. They don't need a denouement. This is this is not relevant to technical writing, and the blogging world makes it even less relevant. So, um, I I do agree, for something like a prologue, or even for some of these articles, like you say, okay, well, I'm going to write chapter four, and it's going to be about X. So go to, uh, here's another thing you could do: go to bloggers that you like. Who write long articles? So um, Steve Yeagy at Google, right? That's that's a good one that people like. Um, although he's really whimsical. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, that might be the best thing you could do. But maybe Steve Yeagy, um, uh, uh, Paul Graham, obviously is someone who's less whimsical, more serious, and that writes longer articles. Um, I, I guess I could push myself, right? Asmartbearblog.com because I write articles that are typically in the thousand to fifteen hundred word category. I like long stuff. Um, so, you know, find so Seth Godin's on the on the you know he'll write a hundred words and be done. So that's not an example for this. So find bloggers who write long articles that you like their style, right? That resonates with you, and once again, read them for structure and maybe structure a chapter that way, or at least use it as a guide, right? A guide to begin. You know, when you said, "Okay, how do I write the first sentence?" You know, if you're stuck on that. Take this structure and say, okay, this is structure, and then just go. Just start filling it in. Right. Okay, well, what about um, the editing and publishing it? Did you use an editor for it? Uh, and, and what services did you lose one of these um, services down available online that, uh, that you can publish? You know, yeah, I didn't use an editor like that. It was more, you know, peer review. And uh, I probably should have used an editor. Well, I say that. So we ended up having some typos. And on the one hand... That's especially embarrassing for a book that's about code review, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got these little snide remarks. Did you even review it? <laughs> you know, okay, <laughs> very good. You know, 
very clever. Um, so perhaps perhaps we should have. On the other hand, you know, another sort of generic lesson in all startup land is <clears throat> you can spend your life trying to polish and make something perfect, and the fact is it doesn't matter that much. And you know, we we gave away thirty five thousand copies with typos, and guess what? It was a big success for us. So yeah, right. So uh, I'm all for being a stickler for details, actually. But on the other hand. This is a great marketing technique. On the other hand, the time that you're spending on this is not time you're spending on your product and doing other important things. So you have to weigh how much time is this worth versus other stuff. And so it may be worth, you know, I mean, you don't want to throw it out there with all kinds of grammar errors and just be embarrassing. It'll do the opposite of what you expect, right? People will pick it up and say, this guy's retarded. Um, right. So you don't want to do that. But, um, but <clears throat> You know, surely it's worth it's worth some effort. I, I I don't have any experience with the online folks, but it sounds like a decent way to at least get a smoke test on it. Hey, I've I've a question for you. If if you uh, were talking to um, some guy who's starting off, starting out new, um, and they've got a software product and they want to start their marketing strategy, and we were looking at the layer cake of what they should be doing. So this this book obviously fits somewhere in that layer cake. And I hope you understand that term, but it's like just the different layers of marketing strategy that they should take on board. What I mean, what sort of overview would you give them? Where would you tell them to start? Um, where would you tell them to progress to? Well, if you haven't started yet and you're a new company, you probably don't have material for a book, right? Like on, upon what are you going to draw? So here's what I'd suggest. Oh, sorry. I'm not just talking about the book. I'm talking about like their overall yeah, yeah, yeah. strategy. Yeah. So the, clearly a blog is a way to get started in many ways, right? You get started with content that's relevant to you. You're practicing your pitch. You're practicing writing about your subject. You're practicing writing in general, just your writing skills in general. You're creating places which Google could find just through regular searches. People could stumble upon you this way. But more importantly, you're creating sort of nuggets of content that you can refer people to later. So when you're on the phone with someone, and something comes up that you've written about, you can just say, oh, yeah, go here. And there's already a well-thought-out sort of re little response to that. Um, I mean, it, the, the, blog, I don't, the blog isn't going to, like, make a million people show up at your doorstep immediately. But it's, it's, it's something that you can spend as much or as little time on as you want and when you want, which is important, that flexibility, right? Because you're going to have a lot of fires at the beginning. So you don't need anything that requires an hour of your time every day. That's no good at the beginning. So here's a way to practice a bunch of stuff, get a whole lot of stuff going. And by the way, if you ever wanted to make something like a book, you've got all your raw content in the blog. And now you literally are filling out an outline with content you've already got and massaging that, maybe adding some more. But then, see, if you've done that, then maybe writing the book is not actually as big a deal. And plus, you've got a lot of practice writing as well. But <clears> – <throat> I mean, as far as other things, you know, the the, the old advice used to be um, Google Ads, but that's when Google Ads were cheap. Nowadays, you can't just say do Google Ads. I mean, when I was starting out, I was spending, you know, a few hundred dollars a month on Google Ads and getting lots of leads. Awesome. Now we spend thousands and thousands a month, and the lead quality isn't even that good compared to some other sources. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure Google Ads is automatically the thing to do, although it's you might as well try it because you can put a limit on the spending, and so it's uh, it's still a good way to start. <clears throat> Another thing is these free – well, they're money-free. They're not time-free things like um, you know, do you have a network of people yourself by email, by LinkedIn, by Twitter, 
who subscribe to your blog. I don't know, whatever. Like there's a million ways, right, to, to, uh, to, have, to build a network of people. But picking one to do and really spending time to build it up helps because the more – not just Twitter followers, that's nothing. But the more actual real human relationships that you can build, people that will do something on your behalf, like when you ask them to spread the word about your version 1.0 to their friends, they actually will – unlike most of your Twitter followers who don't care, like the more of those real relationships you make through any of these media um, clearly will help you, you know, promote your stuff. And nowadays this word of marketing stuff is, is almost the only way to cut through the clutter. So I think that that's, that's, um, that's also word of marketing or word of mouth. The, the word of mouth, I mean, you could, some people call word of mouth marketing, marketing, I see. whatever, you know, whatever title you want on it. But I guess the point is in this age where there's more websites and blogs and garbage than ever, Google is inundated. Everyone's doing SEO. Everyone's flooding Google and Twitter and everything else with stuff constantly. You know, the, the more that happens, traditional marketing is just difficult to make effective. Um, and even things like magazine ads and whatnot, the magazines aren't even here. I mean, forget about whether they're effective. They're not here <laughs> anymore. So right. um, you kind of have no choice but to, I mean, you can try to do some basic, you know, basic marketing things like, like Google ads, you know, all the kind of usual suspects and you should, but the word of mouth stuff seems like one of the few ways that you can cut through the clutter. And the, the penalty said was um, to be amazing. If 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 you are if you just make a point of everything that you do is amazing and, and interesting and remarkable, then that in its own right will just help to spread your word because people will want to talk about you. Well, so I, you know who could disagree with that? But my problem with with Seth Godin and, and people like that saying that right, his word is remarkable. But yeah, exactly, that's true. But and it, having advice that says be amazing and remarkable and outstanding and unique and terrific, like. Sure, that's the goal, but that's not something I can just go do. Like, okay, just like you said with writing the book, okay, what do I do now? Like, should I write a blog? But like, what do you mean be amazing, right? It's really hard to <laughs> to just be amazing. So maybe some 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 detail or some some specific ways to think about that is um, w when you look at your own homepage that you've thrown together for your product, look for words that mean that either mean nothing or are generic like uh, or, or that everyone uses like fast and simple and easy and uh, complete and enterprise and robust and scalable. All these words that used to have meaning but since everyone uses them, you know, so what? And eliminate all of them and say instead of that, what can I say that's only true of me? Or isn't the only in the entire universe but, you know, that really – narrows the universe down a lot. So, you know, what do I actually do? What pain do I actually solve? Can I say what that is that I do that without using words like easy? Like don't say an easy to use debugger. Say uh, a, de a debugger that, that lets you do X, Y, and Z where X, Y, and Z are things that no other debugger lets you do. Right. Be specific about you. And then when you start throwing these words away from your vocabulary, these these trash words, solutions and products, PR and words. Garbage, yeah. they're, but they're not even PR because nobody cares about them. Nobody. Nobody. But I mean, they're, just, they're, they're overused by PR, right? You know, leading provider of enterprise. Yeah, 
stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right? You're communicating zero information. You're definitely not exciting anyone. No one goes, oh my God, they're a leading provider. That's amazing. I got to keep reading. Right? <laughs> no one thinks that. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, <laughs> be exciting, be emotional, be. Okay, so here's how not to be. Say leading provider. There's a great way to kill the conversation, right? So a specific tip for how to do that is seek those words out and literally delete them and force yourself to make to be specific about what you do. That's well, you, different well, in the world. Well, you, well, you know, it's 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 not it's not just a matter of that those words don't work. You're actively putting them to sleep. You're acting you're actively yeah. forcing them to put their guard up because they can tell it's PRBS, right? That, you know, that's they, right. Immediately, I would start reading it. I'm like, ah, eh, no, nah, I'm just stop reading. Right? Here's another. Here's another trick. Here's another trick you can use, again, to in this in this idea of weeding out the stuff that's not amazing, that's not remarkable, right? Um, uh, I didn't invent this trick. Actually, I did think of this trick, but then it turned out that that a lot of other people have thought of this before. So I guess I can't really take credit for it. Um, I call it the opposite test. So whatever the statement is that you make, whether it's a you know, a benefit or whatever, restate it as its opposite and see whether it's silly. Like, for example, you say, my version control, this version control system is fast and easy. So the opposite would be, here's a version control system that's slow and really hard to use. Now, that's just silly. Like, no one would ever claim that. No one would ever put that as a bullet, a point. Because no one would ever do that, saying that is completely useless. Right. I mean, Right, because because as opposed to what that it's not fast and it's it's slow and terrible. Like, of course you're going to say that. So that means it's not conveying any information at all. The fact that it's opposite is silly means the positive is not contributing in a way that is unique, that is amazing, that is interesting. So, saying, um, you know, we this version control system has a a visualization for branching that allows you to have a thousand branches and still manage them properly. The opposite of that statement is probably true of most version control systems, right? <laughs> that, that well, that, well that would be something that you'd also remember too. Like you said yeah. something, and if and if it solved my problem, I'd like, oh wow, it does X. I've been looking for that, you know. Yeah. It's so, not like, oh wow, I've been looking for something that's easy and fast. <laughs> you know exactly. So so you say it doesn't support, doesn't have a visualization for lots of branching, and I would think, yeah, most of them don't. That sucks. In other words, because the opposite is gulp true most of the time. That's indicating, okay, so this saying this is saying something interesting and unique. Cool. So the opposite test. Yeah, so it sounds like good. it sounds like um, what you've told us so far are at, at the very least the beginnings of the journey to being amazing. At least they're going to get you to be unique, which is you have to be unique on on this path, basically. You you def yeah definitely unique because otherwise it's certainly not going to be remarkable. Look, yeah. I, here's a product that claims they're fast. Now, there's one exception here. If you want to completely own one concept, that's good too. So for example, and, and since I brought up version control, Perforce builds themselves as the fast version control system. Fast. And everything you see in their marketing says fast, 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 fast. So if you're going to own the word and say, you know what, we're not going to be 10 adjectives, right? We're not going to be robust and scalable and multi-threaded and, and uh, remote. And, and, you know, we're not going to be 10 adjectives. We're going to be one. We're going to blow fast into your head so many times that you cannot leave this website without going, well, I guess they're fast. Holy crap, right? right. That's good. And then, then you can pick any word you want. You want to use fast? That's fine because you're, you are owning it. 
it's not just you know thrown in there as a trash word along with a million other things. It's it's your whole focus. It's your whole message. That's okay. You know, so it, that's it, the exception to the rule. You know, it's but uh, one thing we could say about about a lot of what you're uh, suggesting, which is, is, is kind of is similar to what um, Justin and I covered in the last episode, and talking about Steve Jobs and how they don't do um, mark. Uh, they don't do focus groups and they don't do market research. They just create stuff that they want that they think is really great, right? Really cool. And the whole the whole thing here is like create something that's valuable. Be honest. Be genuine. Don't try and trick anybody. Be specific. Solve real problems. You know, it's like because we've been inundated through our entire lives with PR and marketing that's just total BS and that's tricking you or trying to convince you to buy something you don't need or trying to solve a problem that isn't real. And that when, so when you start a company, you kind of naturally think, well, how do people sell things or how do people do things? And you naturally start doing these things that aren't going to work one and aren't really good things to be doing. You know, it's like you're talking about do, you know, do things that are do good in the world, right? Help people. And if you keep that in mind, if you stay genuine and stay real and solve real problems, be specific, all these things, you're really putting the the uh, giving yourself an advantage. I mean, you just it's like you almost have to break your habit of trying to follow what seems to be the standard operating procedure of of marketing and uh, and. Well, PR. I'm definitely guilty of just creating products because I think they're they're cool. They're going to be cool rather than rather than actually looking for a purpose for them to exist. Yeah, so. well, I mean, it's yes, it's just it's it's not like any one of those things is is the is the, is the only thing to focus on. Like you could create something nobody needs and be really honest and specific about it, but it's just like you know, or you could create something that's uh, that's well, whatever. I mean, the, the bottom line is that all these are all really important things to 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 do. You like these are all pieces of the puzzle. You know, these are necessary but not sufficient condition sufficient conditions. You know. So, well, you know, we've talked so much about the book. Why don't we talk a little bit about how you got, you know, some about the software and and um, and how you built up your sales, um, or just, you know, the more of the operations of your of your company. Like, for instance, um, you said you started with no debt, no VC. You started this company. I mean, how long did it take you before you got any enough revenue to live on? And I mean, how how did you get? How how long did it take you before you realized that this thing could actually work? That you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to have to give up, move on to something else. Yeah. It took about a year of hard labor before it was um, even generating, you know, half of what the salary was that I had when I quit to do Smart Bear. Um, so you quit full time. You just quit, and you just said, "I'm all in. I'm doing this." Yeah, right. Live off savings. So on the one hand, no debt, no VC. It is true that there were no investments, and it's true that I didn't have a bank loan. But it's a little disingenuous to say no debt because, look, if I'm working for nothing. A year, I mean, it's not debt, but but obviously, I'm putting opportunity cost money into the co company in the sense that my bank account's dropping every month, right? Yeah. To the company, in a way. To the company, well, and just my living expenses, right? So, like, right. however, however much my bank account drops every month, I'm obviously quote unquote putting that in the company, and yeah. it isn't debt in the sense that I have a a, a bank note, but uh, you know, it would be on it would be of course false to say. Uh, yeah, you know, it didn't take me any money because clearly I had to. It did, um, but it is true that that it didn't take at so much money that I required a bank loan or so much money that it required, um, you know, funding. So that that is true. You have a family at the time. No, and that's another important point, right? Because, you know, I didn't need a, a expensive health insurance policy, and I could work constantly and not worry about changing diapers. So. 
that's a really important point. In fact, that's probably a whole other subject to talk about uh, some other time about, you know, kind of work-life balance and is that possible and what does that mean and so forth. But, um, but no, I, I, you know, devoted all my time to it. Um, as yeah, a, I've sort of got a suspicion that it's not even possible to do this if you're in that scenario, if, if you have the family, if you have to sort of look after the wife and kids. Well, it, it could be. Certainly as a sole founder, as I was, um, it seems impossible. I think if you had a few co-founders and everyone was sort of um, okay with all the situation, that maybe maybe it could work. But but I agree with you. It's um, it, Well, what it about – okay, you said it took about a year. Like did you ever measure what your growth rate was? Was there like a – you know, your customer growth rate was like 3% a month growth or 5%? Did you ever measure anything like that? I mean you start yeah. out and you have like one customer and then you got two and then you got – Four. I mean, because we've interviewed yeah, a couple uh, yeah. of, of of startup uh, founders, and they're like, they're right there, like at two months. They're like, oh, I had like, you know, you could tell they had like seven, you know, sales. And once you figure out, like, wow, that just really sucks. But it, if you have a growth rate of X percent, it might turn out that you can project down the line six months or a year or years, and you could be in really good shape, assuming that holds. Yeah. So, so really, you can't do any of those kinds of numbers when you're small, and the reason is that n is so tiny with the number of customers that natural variation, it dominates anything that you're measuring. So, right. you know, when you're doing between, let's say, one and 10 transactions a month, you could have a month that's 12 and then the next month is three and that doesn't mean anything because it just was where it happened to go. Or another example is with larger companies, uh, they tend to do a lot of their purchases at the end of their quarter and especially at the end of their year. And a lot of companies that's December or March um, for their fiscal year. And so those, those can be big, um, or like the end of the month versus the beginning of the month. Um, usually a lot of sales come in the end versus the beginning for us. But then if we had a different product with different customers in their fiscal calendars, or if it's consumer and that's completely different, right? Like all these things are going to, going to dominate uh, more than your growth. An another point there is this, um, we had pretty – well, not at the beginning, but eventually we had some pretty high-ticket stuff like $500 a seat. So again, a sale could be five grand or a hundred grand. And w when a sale is in that size, um, again, you get a couple in this month and then only one in the next month. And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars different and it doesn't mean anything. Um, right. and, but So if you have a really cheap product and you're doing like a hundred transactions a day – then I think you can start looking at uh, those kind of trends because you have so much N that you know you really are looking at something that's statistically significant, and you could start, and, and especially um, products that are uh, 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 periodic, right? You charge per month or, or per year, where you expect that unless someone leaves, you're going to still get that money next month. That also really helps smooth out these curves. Whereas we, um, where you know you buy it once and you're done, and you can buy an upgrade next year if you want to. Um, that's a very different, you know, prediction type thing. So it depends a lot on the style of business, but regardless of the style, at the beginning when N is small, variation just comes from you happen to be in Read Write Web this month, or for some reason one of your blog posts went nuts on Twitter, or just dumb luck. <laughs> that, you know. Do you have any thoughts on price points? Uh, well, you definitely have to talk about price in relation to a specific product and in a specific market and a specific audience because you know one one product is great at five grand another one's good at five bucks like how do you do pricing on the iphone apps versus pricing for enterprise software versus pricing for i don't know like constant contact 
versus a freemium model. Like clearly there's vast, vastly different pricing strategies. Oh, also for business versus consumer is very different. So I, I you know, I don't think I can make many broad statements about pricing, but um, I, I guess if I, if I had to come up with one broad statement about pricing, it would be you have to approach it from your customer's point of view and ask what is, con- what is the most convenient, low, lowest barrier way for them to engage. So let me give you an example. In IT watchdogs, we were selling to IT guys, and the IT guys would always have a corporate credit card. And the rule was if the purchase they made was under a certain number of dollars, they could just make the purchase themselves without asking daddy for money. They could just do it. If it was over this threshold, then they had to go through POs and who knows, right? The whole mess of stuff. So we, knowing that and asking people about their thresholds, we priced our products so that it would be well below the threshold so that an IT guy could buy our stuff without asking permission. We removed a huge barrier in terms of effort. Our competitors were over that barrier. And we were even specifically told many times, well, you know, I, I thought about going with the big guys, but uh, I figured I'd at least try you guys first because I could just do it for free. Now, see, it <laughs> wasn't free, but it was free for him and his yeah. mentality, right? So, so free that's in just terms of the example. fact that he doesn't have to it, – free in terms of time-wise. He doesn't have to deal with exactly. the headache and improve. He can just right. run the credit card. Exactly, and it doesn't come it, – it's not big enough to show up on a budget. So the fact that, that someone would call that free is, I think, a great example of how – I mean, so when I say know how the customer spends money, that sounds obvious and generic. But hopefully this example makes clear that there are specific things about that person's life, about their customer's life, that will make certain price points better than others. That's the kind of thing you want to seek. So if I have to think of a generic statement, that, that w- that's good advice. That's, that's great. Well, well, let's question about that. I mean, when we talked to Peldy Balsamic, and this was episode, I think, three or something, and he suggested that... Um, he, well, we asked him, this, or I think Justin asked him the very same question, and he said, well, look, I didn't want to be the lowest price, and I didn't want to be the highest price, right? And he just kind of picked a number that sounded reasonable that was kind of in there. Isn't that, is that pretty much what he said, Justin? If I'm right there? Yeah, basically, basically it, was, um, it, it was just, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Was it, is that kind of how you thought about it? You, you said, oh, here's a threshold, so I want to be under the threshold, but where do I want to be under that threshold? I mean, how well, did you? No, at, at IT Watchdogs, the idea was cheapest, period. Okay. Um, the threshold turned out to be like a critical sort of a, a critical uh, barrier that we wanted to stay around, uh, stay under. But it was cheapest, period. But on the other hand, at SmartBear, we are the most expensive, and it's worked great. So, so I think I think uh, maybe to, I could say this: that whatever you want to pick, you're the cheapest, you're the most expensive, you're in the middle. None of it's wrong. You can make money being cheap. You can make money. Being expensive, you can obviously make money in the middle. Look at Balsamic. But you have to be consistent in your entire company. So in other words, if we're going to be the most expensive at SmartBear, we better have the most features. We better have amazing customer references. We better have all this material that people want to see to be comfortable that we deserve to be the most expensive, right? We better look the best. We better show up at trade shows and be the, you know, physically be the thought leaders. Um, you know, we have to exude that we're worth it. So I would say none of these are wrong strategies, but but you want the whole company to be consistent with the strategy that you pick. So it's it's if you could coin a phrase, it's you need commitment to your price point. Yeah, commitment and consistency. Like everything okay. needs to needs to make sense along with it. 
Okay, I, I got another uh, question. Another, I want to switch directions again. Um, so you started out, you were, you were all alone working on this. At what point did you, you know, you, I, I imagine you have employees at this point, right? Oh, Smart Beer has, uh, yeah. yeah, 16 employees, yeah. 16 employees, right, okay. So how did that whole growth process happen? I mean, at what point did you, were you just like, wow, this is too much, or I have enough revenue? And um, because I know uh, you hear a lot of times, right, that you know, one one bad employee, one false positive can just bring a company down. I mean, it's critically important when you're small that you hire high, really high quality people that are really good fit because, you know, bringing somebody on and getting them up to speed and getting them to understand, you know, what you're trying to do and getting them productive can take up so much of your time that if if it's a lag or if they turn out not to work out and you have to get rid of them, it can just be – the company just takes a huge hit. I mean, how did you go about that process and what happened for you? For me, the, the biggest choice is whether to have employees or not. And that's the choice of, you know, uh, I want, I, I'm not shooting for the moon. I want a lifestyle business. I want to make a lot of money. I want to make more money than I would make at a job. But I want to, uh, you know, it, it's lifestyle. I, I want it to throw off. I want it to become a cash machine. I like working with my co-founders only. I don't want to risk that. Which, by the way, co-founders has the same risk as, as employees that you just talked about. So uh, really, you've already assumed some of that risk. But you're right. It, it, every time you hire someone, um, you're incurring that risk again. Although presumably you also have more revenue to support that and therefore if they don't work out it actually isn't as as much of a deal breaker as in the beginning. But right, that, that initial choice was was huge. It was huge from a financial point of view. It was huge because you had to decide what direction the company is going to be. Are you going to go big or not? So it's the first one I think that's the hard one. Is that a co-founder? Did you, do you have a co-founder with SmartBear then? No. No. So, you, so your first choice was an employee. Yeah, it took me two and a half years to get to that point. Um, and the the decision point was we there was enough revenue that um, I could certainly live off of it. And then I got this nice big order, big fifty thousand dollar order. And I thought, okay, there's a lot of things I could do with this. But what I'm going to try is I'm going to hire somebody and sort of earmark that fifty k for for hiring somebody. And <clears throat> if they don't work out. Uh, as long as I know, I realize that and stop it before the, that earmarked 50k is gone, uh, then I will not have lost money really, and um, you know it will have been a good risk. It'll be a good thing to try. So that's sort of the event that precipitated it, um, and and of course it turned out it worked out fantastic. Now was uh, this a technical it, person or somebody to help run the business? No. Where, where did you focus it on? No technical. Um, okay. I don't think there's much room for. Or business, or managers, or really even salespeople uh, in an early startup. But then, did that? Did that? Did your role then take on a different meaning once you brought that person on board? Did they then take on certain like a, a large chunk of stuff that you were doing, and then you moved to where? Um, I, it was more just more of the same. In other words, it, it was all writing software, doing tech support, and by tech support, I, I, I treat tech support as sales. This is where you're geeking out with your customers this is where you're thrilling them so to me uh, I say tech support but I'm in my mind that is elevated up to the perhaps the most important thing you can do um, because that's where you're actually talking human to human with your customers so that's where you find out about features that's where you find out that code review and not data mining is actually the right path like it's all quote-unquote tech support so clearly it's like one of the most important functions in the business so so, you know, Eric, who was the first hire at SmartBear, he 
did all of these things. Um, you know, so in that sense, he was doing sales, but he was working on code, and so was I. And, and it was really just there was more things to do. There were features that would open up new markets, which they did. Um, you know, integrations with certain tools that would allow us to sell into more companies, and that did happen. And so we just needed more manpower to to do that. Oh, and um, so your background in coding. I mean, how did how did you learn to code, and how did you get into this? I mean, what what language is this written in? I mean, what t- give us a little background on the tech side. We've been focusing on the business. Be curious here a little bit about your, uh, get a little geeky for a minute and talk talk tech. Sure, I have a background in in C and me- in metal coding, like uh, um, um, optimized code for doing graphics routines, cross platform development in C. Yay, that kind of weird stuff from the nineties. Right. Um, and uh, however, Code Collaborator um, is written in Java. Our first products were written in .NET, another problem, as it turns out. Um, and so, thank God we moved to Java. But uh, so that's all written in Java. Um, so, yeah. I, but of course, you know, I don't want to start any tech wars because it's clear that um, the language has little to do with the success of the product, and it's, it's just a religious thing. It's well, yeah, and you know, probably your best bet is to go with an environment that you know best or that you're most comfortable with. Just so that the environment itself isn't yet another ramp up that yeah, you have exactly. to deal with to get started going, you know, and that it, you know, you could you could argue all day long about what to do with that, but uh, yeah. Um, so your background is in C, but you switched to Java for for this actual product, or right. had you been doing? But had you been doing some Java coding before you started Code Review or Code Collaborator? No. What happened was, I started uh, the Okay, so Code Historian, the first product, it was actually I wrote it because I hadn't I didn't know anything about .NET, and you know the way you learn something is you actually make a product in it, a little product, right? right? Like some you, kind of you project, know. yeah. Yeah, some project. So the initial product for SmartBear was not designed even to be sold at all. It was a project for me to learn .NET. And, you know, this is like the there's no business quote unquote business decision being made here, right? This is complete. Yeah crap and it just turned out that it was an interesting product so there was no thought behind the technical choices and how that would affect a business a saleable product right so so it ended up being a bad choice uh, you know unsurprisingly since that wasn't the idea and we had things like with software tools it's hard to sell just people on windows a lot of people have linux and, and mac boxes and uh, you know, reasons like that, um, it, tip, as as is typical for Microsoft, you have to chase their releases, and that was just causing a lot of time, whereas Sun is really good about uh, backward compatibility, so you're not chasing that as much. Um, at the time, .NET was pretty new, because this was seven years ago, and so the 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 community, the libraries, the other support, the, the IDEs especially for Java were so far outstripped Visual Studio that it wasn't even funny. Of course, nowadays Visual Studio is pretty awesome, but back then, like there wasn't even refactoring. And so, when I first saw refactoring in Eclipse, you know, my jaw hit the floor. So, right. you know, at the time, it was, you know, it was clear that Java was um, a much better choice for a variety of of development and saleable reasons. So when you were doing code historian and then you made a switch to code collaborator, you said, all right, this next project or this ne- is going to be Java. Is that how it worked? Well, 
No, because what hap- what really happened, of course, is I was dr- drug into Code Review, and so there was a product called Code Reviewer, which was .NET based, and in fact, it was Code Historian with hacks in it to allow you to do these various things. Because again, it wasn't in the plan, so of course, it was hacked up, right? Um, at some point, we kind of, uh, and this was this was after I hired Eric, we sort of looked at each other and said, "We're at a crossroads here. You can't let this go too far without. If you're going to rewrite this whole thing." We better get off our ass and do it because the longer you wait, the more that is that is death. That's a recipe for death, right? You don't rewrite. Right. That's one of the rules. But we looked yeah, but that around. Joel, Joel Spolsky talks a lot about, about how that's how, what killed Netscape, right? They exactly. decided to do a full rewrite, and then we never saw the next version of Netscape Navigator. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what, that's what we were thinking. So we thought if we're going to rewrite this, we better up and do it. And we did. And thank God we did. And it wasn't even just .NET. There was also because – Code Reviewer evolved as a hack job on top of Code Historian. We didn't know what the market wanted in terms of features and whatever. So we dis- we the our entire architecture turned out to be incorrect. Um, for example, one person would own the review, like I got the conch, like in you know Lord of the Flies. I got the conch, so I get to do the review. No one else can even see the review. Right. And I scribble on it, and then I hand it to someone else, and then they have it. It's like token ring. So this is wrong. What people really want is they all, they all dive in. If you're there at the same time, it needs to be like chat. If you're not there at the same time, like especially if it's overseas, it needs to be more like a news group. People need to be able to f- flow in and out. And so the root architecture of I own it, you own it was wrong. And the reason we had that architecture was because it was rooted in – Code historian, and when someone said, had this feature request like, I want to be able to send this to someone, we just balled up this file and sent it to someone, right? We weren't thinking, (laughs) or I wasn't thinking about, you know, some kind of groupware, collaborative. I wasn't in that mindset because I didn't didn't fully understand what was even, what people really wanted, right? I was just hearing the features. And so, you know, years later, a couple years later, when it became apparent, okay, now we know what the killer product would look like. And our architecture is so screwed up that it would never work with this. We're going to have to rewrite it anyway. Should we also switch to Java for these technical reasons, for the cross-platform reasons, blah, blah, blah. And it was a big choice, and it might have been the wrong choice in retrospect, um, right? Because rewriting is right. always a scary thing. But in hindsight, it really was the right choice because we the, the cross-platform thing ended up being huge, number one. And the new architecture ended up being absolutely vital. And there's a final reason. You know, at the beginning, of course, you never get a thousand seat order right at the beginning of your company. That's not how those things work. And, you know, at this point, we do have multi-thousand seat installations. In fact, we have uh, a bunch of them. And so with the old architecture, it unquestionably would have not scaled like that, Um, whereas with the new um, architecture, it does. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. No, I'm just saying. So, so in retrospect, it was correct to do that. So the good, the good thing is, though, I guess with .NET and Java, I mean, .NET can be seen as almost like a, or C sharp anyway, can be seen as a dialect of Java. And so, yeah, you had to learn the API calls, but it's not like it was a completely different, you know, programming paradigm. So that at least probably worked in your favor. And uh, well, yes and no. Uh, it it it's. It has similarities, but I dare you to go to TechEd and stand in front of everybody and say that C Sharp is really just a dialect of Java. <laughs> yeah, See if well, you can get out of the room alive. <laughs> right, right, right. No, that, that's, a, that's a holy war. I, I don't want to be part of that. But uh, I, I look at Java. I mean, I've done a lot of .NET programming, and I did Java programming years ago, and I can look at 
they they look sort of similar to me. I have to look close and go, okay, what language am I looking at now? Because they look kind of close. But um, okay, well let's let's ask you uh, one more quick question, and then uh, you know we need to wrap it up. And and I think we'll have to have you back and um, maybe in a couple months or something, and we can ask you some more questions because a lot of stuff that you've written about recently that are that are. You covered some very interesting topics that I think would be great to go into. But so the one other question I have, one remaining question, is about uh, Capital Factory because that's – you said you're a mentor. In your blog, I, I read that you're a mentor at uh, Capital Factory, which is sort of a Y Combinator tech stars kind of a, uh, a venture. And I just – like if you could give us just a little bit of an overview of, of how that's going and how you get involved and, and what you expect out of it. Sure. So Capital Factory, as you say, it's like number three behind those two guys. It is like a micro-angel sort of a thing, but it's, it differs from them a little bit. So the way it works is um, each of the five uh, companies that were eventually selected out of, believe it or not, over 300 applications, each of the five companies got $20,000 in cash. They got also about $20,000 in services, and that's stuff like um, some legal time, for whatever they needed, right? It wasn't preset. It was whatever stuff they needed. Some legal time, uh, design work, like graphic design, um, uh, uh, some some software, uh, hosting uh, for stuff like email and their websites, their web apps, whatever. Right. Stuff like that. Um, useful stuff. And of course, and then there's these 20 mentors. I'm one of them. And uh, the mentors all had to kick in uh, real money. To be, to be in. I mean, that's where the money came from for the uh, startups. It's not a fund. We didn't go out and raise right. money, right? It's our own money. So that's cool because so the like 20 co founders essentially. Well, not co founders because we didn't, it's not like uh, we get a big, huge portion of the company. In fact, we just get 5% for all this. So um, so we're not really co founders, but, but definitely like want to be involved in what's going on and, uh, you know, actualize the title of mentor, right? We want to give advice and listen to what's going on and but ultimately it is advice and the companies can do whatever they want because of course again collectively we only have five percent of the company so it's not like we can make them do anything nor do oh, oh, oh i don't mean that you're co-founders of the of the of the companies that receive money but of the capital factory itself so oh. everybody is like put an equal amount of money and everybody's an equal partner or mentor is that yeah how? yeah that's that's about right um of course the guys who organize it have a little bit more for, uh, in exchange for organizing it but yeah that's that's correct and so there's another thing that's important the mentors all of them have made at least one company that they were a founder of and they were you know a big deal of they weren't just hired in or they weren't right around for the ride you know they were a primary thinker or maybe even the only founder um, most of them have are are now uh, independently wealthy as a result um, uh, but all of them have, you know, at least one successful company like this under their belt. All of them. That's a requirement. Right. So you've got not MBA Harvard guys, not VC type guys, not even sort of official angel type guys, but startup bootstrap, you know, dig in and work 80 hours a week and do everything type guys who have been there. We've all been in this position, not seeing it from the outside, but actually have been there. So you got guys who have put in money and have done this before as mentors. So that's a big – that makes it a, a, you know, a much more tangible benefit than just like, well, some guys are rich, put in some money, so that's cool. But you know, who cares what they say, right? Right. Um, right. So we will see what, what, you know, what happens to these companies. Also, it, the plan is to have a new round of this annually. So in other words, uh, next year – and I don't know exactly when the dates of all that will start, but um, – 
you know, next year we'll do this again, and uh, we may have more founders, uh, more mentors, and therefore be able to take on more companies. I don't know. That's that's another thing that's up in the air, but uh, this will be question. an ongoing thing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you you uh, guys were getting five percent of the company, um, the the companies that you were helping to start. Um, so I just just curious, um, that five percent is that. Uh, is that something that's locked in uh, through various rounds of funding, or is it something that can be liqu uh, liquidate, uh, sorry, diluted to you know kind of one percent after a couple of rounds of funding? Yeah, you know, there's a big old legal document, and to, and to be honest, I don't know all the uh, all the workings of it, but um, um, it's it's designed not to limit the companies from taking on additional funding, whatever that means. Um, in other words, some of them don't need any more funding. Some of them may get other sort of this level of angel money. Some of them might want to go get heavy-duty, big-time uh, VC investment. Um, and we don't want to prevent any of that from happening. So there's nothing in there where a VC would look at it and go, ugh, great, I got, I, you know, we've got these guys hanging on that we have to deal with. You know, it's not, um, right. there's some options in there so that it's not limiting. Well, that's cool. Well, you said there's going to be a big demo at some point in September for you, all these for these first five companies. Right. So September 9th um, is quote unquote demo day mm -hmm. here in Austin, and uh, um, yeah, the companies will present. But also, we have like a nice um, uh, 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 panel to talk about you know startup issues, a keynote speaker, and so forth. So it's going to be a whole. Uh, you know, event and not just not just demos. Although the demos are a big deal because there's going to be a lot of um, angel and VC folk there in the audience who are, of course, interested in the companies. And so, you know, that's another benefit of Capital Factory. So anybody who's in, been involved in the usual VC world knows that one of the benefits that VCs normally talk about is we have connections. We, the VCs, have connections. We can open doors. We can introduce you to people. And right. if you've been involved in those things, you know that that almost never actually happens. Right. And uh, so we we never really promised that in the first place anyway, right? It, it's more right. we've been there before and we're good at – and we, we enjoy talking to you about it. So we can we can help tangibly in that way and that and we do do that. But it's also true that Demo Day is an example of – helping to connect people up because there's going to be um, scores of uh, investors, let's just call them, um, at Demo Day to hear each of the companies. So that certainly is, in fact, <laughs> right, using our network to uh, to connect you with potential investors. Um, so that right. is, in fact, a benefit, as it turns out. Well, so, okay, well, that, I, I think what we should do then, Justin, is maybe have um, have Jason back on the show maybe in October or something that we have a little bit of a perspective on how the demo day went and how these first companies are going. And we can hear a little more follow-up because I think the Capital Factory, that whole model is really interesting. And we've all heard a lot about Y Combinator, but it'd be interesting to hear about Capital Factory and, and their experience and, and uh, maybe talk about, you know, how, how the whole thing worked out. That sounds like a great idea. All right. Well, uh, Jason, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's been really interesting, and uh, we appreciate your time, and I really look forward to uh, having you back on at uh, some point down the road. Thanks. I had a good time, too. I'm looking forward to it. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Can I call you Cohen and Roberts?
Sure. <laughs> it sounds like a pirate show. You're right. Well, just make, sure, just make sure that you tell people that's what you're going to do at the beginning of the show. Free hosting, some free software from 37 Signals, uh, free design Justin? work from a local firm. Hey, yeah. guys. Yeah, this is just so unprofessional. Quit talking yeah. about interesting stuff. <laughs> Quit asking. I, I just, all questions. I said was... <laughs> I'm like, walk away, and I'm like, he's already starting to explain what he's doing. I'm like, I know, what? I didn't say very much. It's not my fault, it's his. You okay. quit asking questions. <laughs> All right, look, here are the first few prime numbers. Two, three, five, <laughs> seven, <laughs> eleven.